Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, the podcast to help you find a cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and if you've ever wanted to own a Mini Cooper, today's a good day for you, because we're going to talk about the R56 Mini Cooper S that was available in the U.S. from 2007 through 2013. This is the two-door, four-passenger hatchback Mini Cooper, kind of the classic Cooper. These cars are old enough that their prices have dropped to a point where they're affordable, but they're still new enough that there's a lot of low-mileage examples still available. Now, are these cars perfect? No, they're not. Are they fun to drive? Absolutely. Do I think you should get one? I think so, but let's talk about it. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. So that question of whether you should get a used Mini Cooper or not is a good one. And the short answer, at least in my opinion, is yes. But it's a yes with some definite caveats. Now, like I said, we're talking today about the R56 version of the traditional two-door, hardtop, four-seat hatchback Mini Cooper in the more potent Turbocharge S package. Okay, these cars fall into what I think of as a sweet spot between being not too old, not too new, with cars available with not too many miles, and in a price range that's not too expensive. But, and there's always a but, these cars definitely have some issues that you need to be aware of. And I'll go into more detail about my experience with my former 2011 Mini Cooper S a little bit later in the show. But first, let's take a look back at how the world ended up with this cool little four-seat hatchback in the first place. Back in 1957, Sir Alec Isagonis was working at Austin as a car designer when the Suez Crisis forced England to ration gasoline. Now, we know all about gas and high prices right now, the things that we're going through. Uh, But back then, they didn't have enough gas, and all of a sudden, large cars were out. And Austin, where he worked, was in need of a small, affordable, fuel-efficient car that could comfortably seat four adults with a price that virtually anybody could afford. So to create this new car, Isagonis did something that nobody had done before. He pushed the wheels far out to the corners of the car and he turned the four-cylinder inline engine sideways across the front of the car and used front-wheel drive. Doing that freed up a considerable amount of space inside the car to the point where four adults could actually fit inside. And the small dimensions, the four-cylinder motor, and the lightweight made it both fuel-efficient and affordable. So he nailed it. And in 1959, this car was introduced to the public as, (laughs) and in typical British fashion, It was both the Morris Mini Minor and the Austin 7. It was soon shortened to Austin Mini and then eventually just to Mini. And long story short, the British fell in love with the car. They loved the Mini. Now, that Cooper part of the Mini Cooper name. So later in 1961, British racing legend John Cooper modified some Minis for rally racing and the Mini Cooper was born. Now, Minis handled well right from the start, but Cooper made them even more potent. He tweaked the suspension, he added more power, he improved the brakes, all in an effort to turn this little car into a giant killer. The car went on to win the prestigious Monte Carlo Rally three times in the mid-1960s, so he definitely achieved his goal. 
In fact, the original Mini was so popular due to its fun-to-drive nature, the low price, the rally success, all of that stuff, that it went on to become England's best-selling car ever, with 5.3 million cars sold by the end of its production run, which ended, I think, in 2000. Okay, now that brings us up to the new Mini, which is kind of the old Mini, because it was introduced like 20 years ago. Anyway, BMW... They bought the rights to the Mini in the mid-90s. And they actually, they bought the rights to the Rover Group, and the Mini mark or the Mini nameplate was included in that. And they started working on developing a new version of that original Mini that when viewed from any angle, couldn't be mistaken for anything other than a Mini Cooper. That was sort of their design directive. They wanted people to be able to look at the car and go, hey, that's a Mini. It's a new Mini. And the new Mini Cooper was launched in the U.S. in 2001, and that first-generation new Mini Cooper was sold through 2006. The initial base Mini Cooper, known internally as the R50, had a 1.6-liter normally aspirated engine that made 115 horsepower and 110 pound-feet of torque. And the Mini Cooper S, known also as the R53, had a supercharged 1.6 liter that made 163 horsepower and 155 pound-feet of torque at 4,000 RPM. That car was capable of going from 0 to 60 in a little bit over 7 seconds. So really quick, fun to drive. Uh, And the engines in the first-gen minis, they were a joint venture between Chrysler and BMW. Interesting thing to note. Okay, now for the second-generation new mini. Starting in the model year 2007, the redesigned second-generation Mini Cooper, while still a small car, it grew a little bit, and the Cooper S now featured a 1.6-liter turbocharged engine rather than the former supercharged version. This new turbocharged engine, known as the N14, made 172 horsepower at 5,500 RPM and 177 pound-feet of torque at 1,600 RPM. The N14 was available in the R56 Mini Cooper S from 2007 to 2010, and this N14 motor had variable valve timing, or what BMW calls Vanos, only on the intake side. So it was a, I guess, a single Vanos system. Uh, But then starting in uh, model years 2011 through 2013, the R56 Mini Cooper S got what's known as the N18 engine. The N18 still was 1.6 liter, but featured a bump in horsepower to 181 at 5,500 RPM. And it did this through what BMW calls double Vanos. Still variable valve timing, but it varied the valve timing on both the intake and the exhaust camshafts. And the torque rating, while still 177 pound-feet of torque, the engine allowed the turbo to go into what they call an overboost mode for several seconds at wide open throttle. And that gave a temporary torque increase to 192 pound-feet, which was 15 pound-feet more than the previous version. So the result was a little quicker acceleration in the N18 cars. They're also supposed to be more reliable. We'll talk about that in a minute. And just to note, the normally aspirated base model engine got a slight bump to 118 horsepower and 115 pound-feet of torque compared with the first-gen cars. The other thing to note, too, is that this new motor was a joint venture, not of BMW and Chrysler, but BMW and Peugeot. Hmm. Now that's interesting. I remember the first time I was underneath my car and I saw a bunch of Peugeot stickers and I thought, what? Wait a minute. 
a British-built car designed by the Germans with a French motor? What could possibly go wrong? Well, I'll tell you in a few minutes. But before we get to that, let's talk about reasons why you might want one and reasons why you might not want an R56 Mini Cooper S. So the first thing, the biggest thing always with these cars is they're fun to drive. So if you like a car that's fun to drive, one that's quick going around corners in the city, it likes a nice tight road out in the country, if you like that kind of car, you're going to love the Mini Cooper. They are definitely fun to drive. That's the top reason, in my opinion, to own one. If you like driving, these are fun to drive. you got to have one. While they're small, they have lots of power for their size and weight. It's a 1.6 liter motor, but 181 horsepower is a lot of power for a small car. So they really are quick. And they really, I guess you would say, they really punch above their weight class, which makes them fun to drive. Back to that fun to drive thing. Okay, small car, easy to maneuver in traffic. If you've got a city commute, this will be so much easier. Same thing goes with parking. It's a small car, so it's easy to park. If you can't parallel park a Mini, then you probably need a bus pass. Seriously. I mean, they're tiny. You can park these things easily. You can see out of them. There's lots of glass, uh, lots of places to look outside and kind of get your bearings before you pull into a parking spot. So really great from that standpoint. Uh, Next reason is they have great handling. Personally, I prefer a rear-wheel drive car, but as a front-wheel drive car, these things handle really well. They're really fun to drive. So again, fun to drive. They also get decent fuel economy. They're going to get around mid to high 20s in town, mid 30s on the freeway. You know, it's not a Prius, but then again, it's more fun than a Prius. Okay, next, the hatchback design is really very functional. I've owned several hatchbacks over my lifetime, and I've always loved them. I'm also a big fan of wagons. This is kind of a, think of it as a short wagon, if you will. But there's a ton of space inside, and you can reconfigure the car by, you know, putting the seats down so you can carry a load plus two people. Uh, There's just a lot of space and a lot of ways to use the car that make them really convenient. So hatchback design, check. Great. Another reason you might want to own one, some people think they're cool. Now, I can guarantee you that if you get a Mini Cooper, it's not going to make you cool I'm not cool, and mine didn't make me cool, but it is a cool car, and there's some people who think it's, like, really cool. So that could be a bonus, or it could not be a bonus. It also might make you a dork. I don't know. Think about it. But those are some of the reasons you might want one. Okay, now let's talk about some of the reasons why you might not want to own an R56 Mini Cooper S. While Mini Coopers offer a surprising amount of space inside for their small size, they're still not a huge car. If you need to carry a lot of people, especially big people, forget it. You're going to get two regular size adults in this car, and in the back seat, you might have room for some small kids. If you have two small adults in the front, you might be able to get two more small adults in the back. But you're really not going to be able to carry a ton of people in the car. Four is the max. The people in the back are going to feel some pain. It's probably a 30-minute proposition, so just keep that in mind. Need to carry a lot of people? Not the right car for you. Do you like to sit up high? Are you used to driving an SUV or a crossover? Well, the Mini's small, and it's low to the ground. You can raise the seat up a little bit, so you sit a little bit higher in the car, 
but the car is low to the ground, relatively. It's not a sports car, but it's not very high. So, you know, you'll pull up between two giant SUVs at a light and think to yourself, man, this is a tiny car. Yeah, it's a tiny car. So keep that in mind. Also, if you do a lot of long-distance driving, they're a little darty on the freeway. I personally don't mind it, but some people do. And also, speaking of long distance, if you're carrying a lot of stuff, the only way to really make it work in a Mini Cooper is to go solo, or maybe two people with the seats down in the back, or you could put a rocket box on top, but then you're going to cut into your fuel economy, and it sort of defeats the purpose of having a Mini. Something to think about. Another reason why you might not want one of these is they can be a bit finicky, especially with higher mileage. There are some things that go wrong, so you want to keep that in mind. The other thing is, there's not a lot of feedback for drivers who like to monitor their car while they're driving. Okay, that's me. Raise my hand. I like to keep track of what's going on with the car. I'll be driving along and I'll look at the coolant temperature. I'll look at the oil pressure. I'll look at whatever gauges are available to me to make sure everything's working properly. Especially if I like hear a noise or there's a little knock or a sound or whatever. I want to be able to look at the oil pressure gauge and go, okay, I got oil pressure. Water temperature's fine. Hmm. It might be nothing. It might be something. But with a Mini Cooper, you have no clue because there's no gauges. And if something does go wrong, the screen <laughs> basically pops up a thing that says, oh, there's a problem with your Mini Cooper. Visit your local Mini Cooper dealer. Oh my God, that is annoying. It happened to me a few times. I was just kind of pulling my hair out, what few hairs I have left, and thinking to myself, come on, just give me a gauge. I just wanted to know, is it overheating? Do I have oil pressure? Is it that sort of a thing? Or is it like something else? Well, you don't know. You got to go to your mini dealer and figure it out or plug in your OBD2 scanner and check for codes. But you're not going to be able to do that while you're driving. And I found that personally frustrating. Another thing I would say, and this is kind of a double-edged thing, they're not easy to work on when you first open the hood you look down, you go, this is a really cramped engine bay. There's all kinds of hoses and stuff, and it's just full of things, okay? They have to cram a lot of stuff in there. So it's not easy to work on, at least initially. Like, if you have to change the oil, it's really hard to get to the oil filter, and it kind of comes out at an angle, and if you don't put a bunch of rags and stuff underneath it, you're going to spill some oil, you're going to make a little bit of a mess, and it's just kind of frustrating. Now, on the flip side, the car in the front comes apart sort of like a puzzle. And when I had to do some more major work on the car, I took the whole front end off and it opens it up to the point where it was actually really easy to work on, easier than most cars. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's not easy to work on when you just lift the hood, but you can take a few things off the car and it's pretty easy. So if you like to work in your car, it's kind of a mixed bag. So those are some reasons why you might and why you might not want an R56 Mini Cooper S. All right, now let's get into my experience. So in 2017, I bought a 2011 Mini Cooper S. This was a car with the N18 motor. I'd done a little research and knew that the N18 was supposed to be a little bit more reliable than the N14 motor. This car also had relatively high miles. It had about 116, 117,000 miles. But I thought, you know, after checking it out, I did a pre-purchase inspection, uh, took it down to the local BMW slash mini shop. They checked it out for me. They said, well, there's a few minor things wrong, but nothing really major. It had a small leak around the valve cover, which needed to be fixed. 
that was something I could do myself. It was going to need tires, um, going to need brakes relatively soon. It just didn't seem to need a lot of stuff. It needed to be kind of cleaned up a little bit and shined up a bit, but the price was great. It was only 4500 bucks. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get a cheap, high-mileage Mini Cooper S. Well, I just want you to know right up front that I am living proof that there is no such thing as a cheap, high-mileage R56 Mini Cooper S. There's just no such thing. Because I ended up having a bunch of problems with the car. Not because it was a bad car. It was just sort of like the music stopped and I didn't have a chair. That's really what it came down to. This, there are certain trouble spots or issues with these cars. I just happened to get them all kind of at once, which sucked. <laughs> but initially, the car was great. I think I put about, I don't know, three or 4,000 miles on it over about a nine-month period of time and really had no issues. I got like 25, 26, 27 in town. Uh, I got like in the mid-30s on the freeway. I took it on a few trips, two that were 400 miles round trip, a couple more that were like two, 300 miles round trip. No issues. Car worked great. It was fun to drive. Again, I put a nice set of tires on it. I pulled the wheels off. I checked the rotors. The rotors were fine, so I just replaced the pads on the car. And I knew that I was going to have to deal with that leaky valve cover gasket. And I knew there were a few leaks underneath the car, some dripping here and there. But I figured, eh, it can't be that big of a deal. Well, it turns out these cars have several things that can go wrong. Uh, one of them is the high-pressure fuel pump. Those can fail. And the pump's not cheap if you buy the factory pump. Um, it's right around $900. That's a spendy item. Timing chain. Mostly an issue on the N14 motors. I had the N18, but that's another fail point. Thermostat housing for the coolant in the car. Those tend to fail over time, and it's this big weird thing that looks like a Jarvik 7 artificial heart. And if you're old enough to know what a Jarvik 7 artificial heart is, congratulations. You're ready for Medicare. <laughs> Not seriously. Look up Jarvik 7 on Google, and you'll see this thing and go, oh, that's weird looking. Well, that's kind of what these things look like, except it's all black. And then there's also a crossover tube that runs behind the motor underneath the intake manifold. That will fail over time as well, especially right where it plugs in opposite side of the motor near the water pump. The plastic goes through too many heat cycles. It gets hard. It breaks. It leaks. It's a mess. Up front, there are issues with the turbo feed and return lines. So the turbocharger is lubricated with oil from the engine, and there's a line that comes out to the turbo, and then the oil runs through it, and then a separate line that runs back into the engine in a different spot. And one of those is a hard line, and it's got a banjo bolt and a banjo junction that fails over time and can leak quite a bit. Also, the oil filter housing, which is on the front side of the motor, underneath the turbocharger, rubber and heat, they don't dance, man. It's like oil and water. They don't get along. And what ends up happening is those gaskets between the oil filter housing and the engine and the oil filter housing and the oil cooler, they tend to get hard and brittle over time and they will start to leak. Okay, what else? There's a thing called the oil pump control solenoid. It plugs into the oil pump inside the oil pan, but it's monitored through a wire that runs out through the side of the case. And over time, the plug where that wire runs through on the side of the motor, 
it starts to leak. Dripping is one issue. You know, you get drops of oil on the floor. It's kind of annoying. But the other thing is, over time, the oil that's coming off there can actually wick up the wire and go up the wiring harness and get up into your engine control computer. Germans call it the DME. Uh, The DME is your engine computer, and it basically monitors all the stuff in the car. If you get oil up into that, you're screwed. It's over. You can take that thing and, you know, put it in the garbage. Anyway, you want to fix that leak so it doesn't wick up into your wiring harness and into the DME and cause a problem. Intake valves. So any car that has direct injection, and direct injection is where the fuel is directly injected into the cylinder of the motor. It's not injected into the air mixture as it's drawn in over the valves. It's directed directly into the cylinder. What happens on those cars is you start to get carbon buildup on the intake valves over time. And the only way to clean that off is to use either some really strong chemicals or you literally turn the motor, close the valves, and you use compressed air and walnut shells to blast that stuff off while simultaneously sucking it out with a shop vac. I had to do that. That was fun. No, it was not fun. It was not fun at all because I had to learn all this stuff. You know, it was like a one-time, first-time thing for me. Other stuff that can go wrong with these cars, they have a lot of um, computer chips and little modules. They just control various functions in the car. There's a lot of little noodly stuff like that that either through heat, time, whatever it is, they eventually fail. So a car that's 10, 12 years old, it can go. You're done. And you got to replace those parts. And some of them are kind of spendy. And they're coded specifically to your car. So if you put a new one in, it has to be set specifically to the make and model and VIN number of your Mini Cooper. That's something to keep in mind. So those are some of the things that can go wrong with an R56 Mini Cooper S. And with that, we are at the end of part one of this two-part series on these small, cool, but sometimes challenging cars. Like I said, minis are fun to drive. That's why I bought one. But you want to go into ownership of a used R56 Mini Cooper S, especially a high-mileage Mini, with your eyes wide open. Because, at least in my case, most of the issues I just mentioned ended up being a problem on my car. Now that said, in part two, the next episode, I'll tell you specifically how these problems manifested in my Mini, and I'll tell you what I had to go through to fix it and get it back on the road. Look, if you're thinking about buying a used Mini, you definitely want to hear what happened to my car. So be sure to join me next time to find out all about that. And in the meantime, thanks for listening to this episode. And until next time, I'm Gary Crenshaw. This is Better Than New, and I'm really glad you came along for the ride.